I'm excited to tell you about our presenting sponsor, Hunt Club, the leading tech-enabled executive search firm. For Rick and me at Sater Grove, one of our obsessions is identifying and cultivating talent. Selfishly, it's one of the reasons we teach Art of Investing. The class allows us to get an unfair early glimpse at some of the best talent out there. But we all know the talent universe is vast and competitive, so beyond simply relying on our own networks, we've partnered with Hunt Club to assist us and our portfolio companies with all things search. Through its proprietary software and approach, Hunt Club is able to harness the networks of literally thousands of leading professionals to make warm introductions and personal referrals during a search. In our minds, gone are the days of relying on only one recruiter's Rolodex or on simply who's top of mind that week. By leveraging Hunt Club's network and technology, we've been able to unlock much more powerful connections, and we've been able to consistently find the right people for the right roles. So if you're looking to truly harness the power of networks with the ideal solution for all of your talent needs, visit huntclub.com AOI to learn more and get connected with our good friends over at Hunt Club. Hello and welcome to The Art of Investing, the podcast devoted to helping you more fully experience the joys of compounding in all its forms. I'm Paul Buser. And I'm Rick Berman. We are your hosts. In each session, our teachers will be some of the world's most compelling people from across the vast range of human achievement. Take your seats. Class is in session. This show is brought to you by Pine Grove Studios in collaboration with Colossus. The hosts of the show, Rick Berman and Paul Buser, are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Holdings and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Management Company. All opinions expressed by any of Rick, Paul, or their podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of either Sata Grove Holdings or Sata Grove Management Company. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Sata Grove Holdings or clients of Sata Grove Management Company may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Our teacher today is Oliver Thomas, founder and managing partner of Expedition Growth Capital, a leading growth equity firm based in London and built to serve the next generation of capital-efficient, founder-led European software companies. Ali and I first met just over 20 years ago while we were both getting our MBA, and I quickly recognized I had stumbled on a human compounding machine of the highest quality and character. Since then, I've sought to align myself both personally and professionally with him in as many ways as possible. This includes serving on Expedition's LP Advisory Committee, building companies together, including most recently Uplift Group, and perhaps most importantly, having the great honor of being godfather to one of his wonderful daughters. With that disclaimer and my biases made crystal clear, I thought this class was just jam-packed with colorful stories, insightful career advice, and lots of other helpful learnings, including a history on the bootstrapped growth investing landscape that goes all the way back to the late 70s and originated by a woman named Jacqueline Morby while working at TA Associates. The archetype of bootstrap software companies and their elements of differentiation versus VC-backed peers, which tend to be better funded but more fragile due to capital dependency. And finally, what it takes to win as an investor in this fascinating and attractive small corner of the market. With that, I hope you enjoy our class with the excellent European software investor and my good friend, Oliver Thomas. Come on! Ali, welcome to The Art of Investing. It's great to have you with us. And... This may come as a surprise to you, but I feel obligated to let you know that you're actually the first Welshman that we've had on as an Art of Investing guest. And believe it or not, I think there's plenty in our audience who may not know that much about Wales except for their wonderful grapes. For those not familiar with the country, and so often we find that 
someone's hometown plays a role in their formation. We'd love to just hear a little bit about the arc of your early life and upbringing. Thanks, Rick and Paul, for having me in the class here. Rick, you've been a great friend and source of terrible Welsh jokes for 20 years now, and it's good to hear you still got it. I grew up in Cardiff, capital city of the great Welsh nation, and I have just so many happy memories of family life there with my parents, with my older brother, Matt, my older sister, Wendy. I'm the third child of three. I'm sure that's had an imprint on me. A childhood of long car journeys in the middle seat somehow makes you want to go your own way in life, I think. And similarly, my friendships just got a lot of really terrific 30-year-old friendships that just stack full of fond memories. And those roots there from Wales, they've been the foundation for everything that's followed. Maybe if I just give you a little history for those of you that aren't so familiar, little known fact that Wales was actually the first industrialized country on the planet, the first country where there were more people working in industry than in agriculture. That happened in Wales in 1851. That was driven by the huge steel and coal industries. And I'd say overall, it's a country that's had a pretty bad experience in a lot of ways with capitalism, huge coal industry, mining communities that were left with few alternatives when the British government decided to exit that industry in the 80s. It's just a fantastic community-oriented place, warm, friendly people, lots of rugby, lots of singing, beautiful mountains, but some skepticism, I'd say, of business and wealth creation as well. And then within that, my family story, my mom was a nurse. She worked nights so that we could all have the things we wanted. My dad, he didn't go to university, but he qualified as an accountant and ended up becoming a finance director in a local bus company. And around, I guess it was the mid to late 80s, there was a big deregulation going on in transport in the UK. A lot of the regional bus companies that were state-owned were getting privatized. And my dad was part of a buyout team. So there was no small cap private equity at that time in South Wales. He took out a loan and bought in 20% stake in this company. And that didn't go well, ultimately. The company didn't make it through the recession in the early 90s. And he found himself out of a job and in a time when interest rates were, it's hard to think about it now, but three times as high as they are today. And so that was a really tough time for my dad. And I think to some extent lit a fire in me. It was a formative time. But I think my mom and dad just did so many things right in bringing up me and my siblings and couldn't be more grateful for that upbringing. That's some really fascinating history. I'm curious, first starting just with the Welsh context, what are the ways in which you think that experience of a nation has played into how you think about business, maybe risk tolerance, any elements of a formation that relate to you, the investor? One of those things that my parents did really well, I've got three little daughters now. And so I feel like every year you become more appreciative of things that your parents navigated, how they handled things. But one of the things I'm really appreciative of is that they really let me make my own decisions. And I don't know if that's a function of where I grew up or just the philosophy that they had as parents, but they really believed that their job was to get us out the house and get us on our way independently. The sort of modern ideas of parenting where you take risk out of the way, feel like they were definitely not wired that way. And a great example always stands out to me is when I applied to 
Oxford. So 18 years old, coming out of high school. And I got a place to study the course I wanted to study, economics and management, the college I wanted to study at, Jesus College. And I was just delighted with that, having been encouraged to apply by my old history teacher. I'll always be grateful to him for encouraging me to do that, Mr. Widows. But I'd gotten a place. And at the same time, I had applied to work for an American firm called Arthur Anderson. They had a sponsorship scheme where they would give you some money to go through university with if you came and worked for a year before going off to university. So it was pretty selective. And they took, I think, 50 kids from around the UK and put them onto the graduate program. And you could go and have all the experience of earning your own money, having that professional experience. And that was really exciting to me, the idea of going and having a firsthand experience of a business like that and standing on my own two feet, earning my own money. I applied for it. I didn't imagine I'd get either, let alone both of these opportunities. Ended up getting accepted onto that program and had this conundrum. I really want to go do this program, get this business experience, but I've also got this place to go study at Oxford. So I called up the college and said, I've got this problem. I've got this other great opportunity. I think if I went and did it, I'd be a better candidate, but I'd need to defer my place. I'd need to be able to take a year and then come to Oxford the following year. And the way the colleges are set up at Oxford, there's not many places on each course at each college. And so I think there's only three on my course and they'd already deferred one person. They didn't have any flexibility left to do that. And so they said, no, sorry, we can't. If you want to go do that, you would need to withdraw your application and reapply. And so I went away and thought about it and I checked back in. I said, would I be disadvantaged if I did that? And they said, no, it'd be a level playing field. You'd have to give up your place. So I opted to do that. And I said, okay, I'll back myself to go get the grades I was predicted. I thought it'd be a valuable experience and I could reapply. So I did that. I reapplied. I showed up for the interview and the professor's first question was, do you regret turning down the offer? And I said, I'll tell you in a few weeks. And thankfully, they took me onto the course again. And it was only then when I'd been admitted, I got around, I told my parents, I said, I got in, it's great. And the idea of going to Oxford with this great experience of working for an American firm already, I thought, this is terrific. But it was only when I told them that my mom and dad exhaled and said, oh my goodness, we thought you were just totally crazy. Can't believe you did that. And I think it takes a lot as a parent to not just overrule your 17, 18-year-old son who was excited about some professional experience. Looking back, it's a big fork in the road in my journey because I did go to university with some exposure to the business world. And that set a bit of a course for me. But a lot of parents might have shut those ideas down and said, you've got a place at Oxford, you go take it. I just got respect for that and those moments of taking risk have been really formative for me. And if I look back, being given the freedom to live life as a bit of an adventure and get off the stuff that is exciting and make my own mistakes, I think that's been pretty fundamental to making progress in different ways. I also find that remarkable as a parent of young children too, just how difficult that must be. But I think today, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think about how that gift could translate to you as an investor, a predominantly minority investor, supporting entrepreneurs, founders, and the ways in which you think about how to influence them, influence versus control, but certainly an extraordinary gift that your parents 
gave you? Ollie, sports have been a big part of your life. And just want to dig in there for a minute. You grew up in a place where the outdoors and hiking and sports were really vital to you. And maybe it wasn't with Rick on the tennis courts back at HBS, but can you talk about those early influences and why you chose the sports you did? Definitely grew up in a place where there's a big onus on sports. I think particularly rugby. Rugby is the game in Wales. I always loved that game, still do. And I'd say I'm fairly middle of the road rugby player by Welsh standards. I played that going up through university. And then interestingly, even when I got to HBS, I didn't expect it to be, but it was a real part of my experience there. I was very young going to HBS. I basically went straight from undergrad. And there were times there where I felt like I'd taken a leap too far. Have I gone out of my depth? Do I really belong? I'm 22 years old and everybody else has got way more experience. And thankfully, guys like Rick would spare me the time of day. But I ended up finding that there was a rugby club there full of awesome group of American guys that wanted to try a new game. They'd been college football athletes or other sports and they'd wanted to transition to rugby. And then also folks from South Africa, Argentina, the UK, France, Japan, other countries that play rugby. We'd train a couple of times a week. We'd play on the weekends. We'd go on tours around the US. And in a lot of ways, that was a great part of my experience. Really built a great group of guys who respected me, even though I was five plus years their junior. Sport is just such a leveler for getting on the playing field. And I think that was for me as a young person going into HBS where there's 900 people in the class. Everyone's so impressive, come from all these incredible backgrounds. And you feel like everyone's resume screening each other a little bit. And am I impressive enough to be in the middle of things here? It was great to find a group of guys who didn't care about that, were focused on the fact that you were a good player on the team. And so I ended up captaining that team in my second year. And I think it's a good example of the merits of running your own race because when I came around to get the job at Summit Partners, a graduation, I think there were two spots for the VP job and half of campus interviewed for this job. And the other guy who got it was returning after being an associate there, one of your great ND alums, Ryan Sweeney. And I got the other slot. I gathered that when the summit guys were doing their referencing, one of the things that was helpful is that they'd watch me training week in, week out at the gym and watch me marshalling teams, these 250 pound American guys around the field. <laughs> I think they were able to give me some credit that had some leadership qualities. And I think if I'd have spent my time thinking, oh, I should join the VCP club and done a bit more resume building, I don't expect I'd have found myself a slot in a great firm like that. And then I was also a boxer. I boxed for the university. And that was a big comfort zone thing. I was training really hard at the time. And to my earlier comment, I'm kind of a middle of the road rugby player. I wasn't getting on the first team at Oxford, but I was training really hard. I was fit. And I was looking for something where I could apply it, basically. When I'd taken that scheme at Arthur Anderson on my gap year, there'd been a guy who worked with me who'd been to Cambridge. And he said, when you go to Oxford, there's one thing you should do. It's go and watch the varsity boxing match. It's the most electric experience. Thousand people in the Oxford Town Hall at nighttime, just going wild. So I had that on my radar and I got to Oxford. It felt totally out of my comfort zone, to be honest, but I just showed up to training and they had this incredible program where there these great coaches. And if you signed up, train about 14 times a week, night and day, you had to cut weight down. When I got to HBS, I realized it had a lot in common with the wrestling, all the guys that had gone through college wrestling. 
it was a parallel experience to that. It was a one-year experience, really, because it was so intense. I ended up having to get back to my studies. I think one thing my dad did say to me at one point, he said, you didn't go to Oxford to become a professional boxer. You probably do need to think about those books. It was a one-year really intense experience. It just took me way out of my comfort zone. I'd go through a daily cycle of talking myself out of going in and doing training and getting knocked around, but getting in there and just got incredibly fit and hadn't had an experience that it'd be hard to find without being a professional athlete. It was like a little microcosm of that for 12 months and going out and fighting the varsity match. I think it built confidence, built a sense that, hey, I can do that. Those are experiences that I was sort of drawn to pursue bit of an adventure, really doing something interesting and different. But then it went on to serve me pretty well, I think, through all the different experiences that followed. Yeah, just as an aside, I think college sports is held with a higher significance, generally speaking, in the United States than in most other parts of the world. But there really is nothing quite like the rivalry between Oxford and Cambridge. And I remember when I got there, someone described to me when I was going to play tennis for Oxford that essentially we could lose every match. But if we beat Cambridge, it would be a resounding success of a season. That literally, that match was the only one that mattered at all. And we've got great rivalries here in Notre Dame, USC, of course, and games that are important, but none that supersede an entire season. It's a really cool experience. One of the dichotomies that I'm just thinking about for the first time is it seems like on the one hand, you've always struck me as a very deliberate person and very measured. And yet by 22, you've already collected a set of pretty remarkable experiences in a way that almost seems like there was this sense of urgency pushing you forward always faster than what would be typical. You had the Arthur Anderson work experience that you pursued, and then I think you spent some time at Goldman Sachs as well. But by the time you actually get to Harvard Business School, you're 22. I think you're the youngest person in our entire class. If not, you're very close to it. But curious if you have any reflections on what seems like a young man in a rush to get somewhere, and yet everything about your temperament, to me, screams the opposite. The motivations that grew, I think they were intrinsic. It was pursuing things I wanted to pursue. I wasn't feeling under pressure. And I guess I got to really liken that satisfaction of working hard, doing well, and that identity. I always assumed that was big fish, small pond. I was doing okay in a not super competitive environment. The journey then from there to getting up to Oxford and realizing that I could hold my own but all the while, I would say I was not gunning after academic excellence as such. I think I was really just getting after life as an adventure. The idea of just making the most of my potential, making the most of life. I think it had come a lot from those experiences I was alluding to with my dad and his business. I think that was a pretty hard time. And some of that was financial motivation, thinking, oh, I want to work hard so that money's not a big problem. But I also wanted life to be optimistic and get out there and make the best of it. And I think that was a real driving force. It was really just going after opportunities that were energizing. And in a lot of ways, that sort of freedom and that encouragement to take risks and go my own way not to follow a conventional path. For example, the journey into Harvard Business School was also a story, really, because I was working at Goldman Sachs, was on the internship program in 2002, which had been just thrilling in different ways. I still had a shelf stacking job at a grocery store on my resume, and I'm now on the M&A advisory team 
for that supermarket that is about to be buying. I'm just like, this is great. Going on this adventure of life's way bigger and more exciting and interesting than it was a couple of years ago. I loved that experience. And a phone call, I could picture it now from this great friend of mine from Oxford who actually introduced me to my wife as well. So I've got a lot to be thankful for this guy. And he's actually gone on. He's like a senior guy in the British Special Force. He's a terrific guy. And he called me. He'd been on an internship in the US working at 3M. And he had somehow asked a question of the CEO. The CEO is called Jim McNearney, I think who went on to be a big CEO at Boeing after 3M. Anyway, he put up his hand. He's on the internship program. He puts up his hand, asks some question. It's so insightful somehow that this guy says, oh, why don't you come and spend 10 minutes with me or whatever in my office? So he goes there and Jim McNaney says to him, you need to go to Harvard Business School, straight to Harvard Business School, like they did in my day. I went straight to Harvard Business School. You should do that. You're mature. You're ready. You should do it. So this friend of mine, Andrew, he calls me up. And he knows that I, for someone our age, I'd had quite a lot of this experience. I'd had this year with Arthur Anderson, I had a few months with Procter & Gamble, Goldman Sachs. He calls me up and he says, I met the CEO. He says, I need to go to Harvard Business School. What do you think? I said, you wouldn't want to do that. Even if you could do that, you wouldn't want to do that. These days, it doesn't work like that. Everyone waits three, four, five years. So not a great idea. But he says, okay, when I get back to London, there's a presentation We'll go out, we'll make a night of it, but can we go to this presentation and just see what you think? So go along to this Harvard Business School presentation. It was at the Bloomberg offices. And I'm sat there. I've just done my internship at Goldman. I've got the offer to go back and join the analyst program. And I sit down and this thing just blows me away. I'm just like, this is so exciting. Like everything they're saying here, this place just looks unbelievable. I've just got to give this a shot. And actually, he ended up had this big bit of coursework. He didn't get the application in, but I got the application in. I didn't tell anybody I was applying because I knew it was a little bit ridiculous, but I applied and then I got in. And so looked at that and I thought, this isn't like a conventional career track, but I'm not going to get to my deathbed and regret having gone to Harvard Business School when I was 22. So basically thought, yeah, I'm going to go do this. It's like an unsecured mortgage to go and do this degree which for folks from the UK, it's not that conventional. We don't have huge education loans in the same way that you do in the US. And I just went for it. And I think it was more that spirit of adventure rather than, I guess, in there somewhere, there's an intensity and a motivation to get after stuff. So I packed my bags and headed to Boston. Ollie, I think my learning so far in this conversation is you'd be crazy to compete against you. And now we're at 22, 23 years old. And you seem to, when you've been given an idea, whether it's boxing or going to Oxford or skipping out on the Goldman full-time offer, as soon as you get that idea in your head, then you fight really hard and you tend to win. I'm really curious how this fits with the job at Summit. And you mentioned Ryan Sweeney had the other slot, but how did you even learn about the type of growth equity Summit did? I'm just so curious why that was the battlefield you picked when you were in business school. Again, people that come into your orbit and they write your story, I think, in a lot of ways. I got to Harvard Business School and I was by total necessity in the smallest room on campus. You could touch both walls simultaneously and somewhere in there was a bed and a desk and we were in the halls there in Galton. And it just happened that, and this was my experience at HBS, that all these people who were there for at different points in their journey, they're all fascinating people, but the experience of Harvard Business School 
is sort of playing such a different role in different people's journeys. And it happened that another guy who was in my halls of residence happened to be the first bootstrapped founder that Summit had backed in Europe. And so first weekend, we're there. And again, I was feeling pretty out of my depth at this point. But Alex, this guy is knocking on doors on the corridor saying, hey, classes haven't started yet. We're going to have to find a beach. And do you want to come? Sure. Okay. So go in the car. We go out, have this day out on the North Shore or somewhere in Boston. So my great fortune, these folks, super easy going. They're not like strategically resume screening for who their study group's going to be. They say, we need a study group. Should we meet at seven in the morning and get going? So I end up in a study group with this guy who's the first bootstrap founder really backed by some in Europe. So that gives me just an insight. I'm learning about a lot of things at that time. I'm learning about private equity, bench capital. I'm exploring all sorts of different things, but roll around a year or so. And Alex was kind enough to say to Scott, who was building out the office at the time in London, hey, I'm in study group with this guy, Ollie. It might be a good fit for what you guys do. And obviously, that's about as good a reference as you can get, given that the firm had just made some big money multiple a year or two on this deal. It was my great opportunity that I think Summit is a firm that traditionally certainly had more of an appetite hiring raw materials rather than finished product. I think most of the other really respected firms would look for really well-developed professionals to come join them post-MBA. Before you say you wouldn't want to compete with me, I think that story, my journey to that point was finding a way where I wasn't just competing head-to-head. I was taking my own path. One of the things that's interesting for folks in your class is that if you take your own path, one of the great benefits is that there aren't many people on it. That has more been the theme of sort of craft in my career and finding paths that feel really true to me and energizing to me without sort of slugging it out with armies of other people that are walking the same road. Ali, your commentary about the attributes of business school, it seemed even more relevant today. We just had Cal Fussman in class not too long ago when he talked about how building human connections is just getting more difficult for a variety of reasons. And yet here's an opportunity for two years essentially to, sure, explore other career paths, but do it primarily through building relationships with your peers. Anything else just about those two years that were important in just shaping you and giving you an opportunity to succeed early on at Summit, which by the way, I remember that experience. I mean, you were only 23, 24 at the time getting a VP job at a place like Summit, even if they were more open to raw material, was somewhat controversial. I would think the typical candidate was, sure, one of your fellow students, but one who had maybe four or five years of relevant work experience. I think from here, we're going to talk a lot about bootstrap growth equity investing and Before we get back to your career and your start at Summit, what you learned from Summit, HG Capital, of course, then there's the evolution toward building your own firm. We're coming off of this bit of a bubble that's bursting in venture capital. The notion of bootstrapped investing has certainly gotten more popular again, but up until recently, it was still this sideshow niche area of the investing world. I'd love it if you're up for it. Just give us a sense for the history of how this kind of investing 
came about. And then we'll eventually come back to the role that it's played in your career and the role that you're playing in the next chapter of bootstrap investing in Europe. A lot of industries have family trees, which are fascinating to study. When you look closely at a lot of different businesses, and we find it with things we invest in as well, if you go and study the genealogy of talent in these markets, there's often a really rich story there. And the segment of the industry that I'm in is definitely an example of that. So what I could gather, it actually started with a woman called Jacqueline Morby. So she was an associate, a TA associate. So if you go back to 1980, TA, I think, was the largest venture capital firm in the US. I think it had a $125 million fund, and that made it the biggest VC firm in America. And I think it was doing a lot of venture-style investing, sourcing deals through networks, a bunch of guys from HBS, from Stanford, et cetera. And from what I've read in trying to trace back, okay, where did this really get going? I've read that this lady, Jackie Morby, I think she's now on the board at the World Wildlife Foundation and has had a great career, but she joined TA as an associate. She had previously been a teacher, I think a school teacher, but she'd gone through her MBA at Stanford and then joined relatively later in her career as an associate. And all of the guys around her were like sourcing deals, the old boy network kind of way. And she thought, hey, I read about this interesting looking company, particularly the software companies that were emerging at the time. It's an interesting looking company. Does anyone know this guy who runs this company that I've read about in this magazine? And none of the partners contacts. She thought, okay, I'll call this guy. I'll just pick up the phone and I'll say, hey, I'm calling from TA Associates and could I come and you know, learn about your company? And they're like, okay. So she goes on a drive on a plane and started meeting all of these remarkably profitable bootstrap self-financing software companies and sort of reporting back that, hey, these are really interesting companies. She keeps proactively calling companies, companies that have a use for capital, but not a need. They're not in the market raising venture capital. Nobody in the old boys network or the venture network knows about them because they're not out there promoting. They're not out there saying we need to raise. But if you learn about them from an industry source, you can see, hey, these are well-positioned competitive companies. And if I can just directly get to learn about them from their founders, these could be really interesting investments. Hey, these could be the most interesting investments because these are companies that don't actually need money. They're healthy, prudently built, self-financing businesses, and they're still growing at 30, 50, 100% per annum. Hey, wouldn't it be great to be able to be a minority shareholder in a company like that? From what I gather, she's built this practice there and TA adapted to spend more and more time on those kind of deals and became a real powerhouse before it's evolved into a more buyout-oriented buy and build strategy today. But probably between 1980 and 2005, 2010, this was the core deal type. And there were a couple of entrepreneurs that in 1984, partners at TA who said, hey, let's just go and do this type of investing. And they founded Summit Partners. And so they just pursued this proactive, direct outreach, don't go through the finance networks, just go direct and go find these founders that are happily outsiders to the ecosystem because they're busily building great companies. They're not out raising money. Summit has gone on to just be a phenomenal firm and a lot of the best investors in our industry are in that firm, leading that firm. But it's also trained a number of folks who've then become entrepreneurs themselves and said that they can go out 
bring some new level of specialism, pursue a particular industry or a particular check size, or maybe gone and trained at another firm and then fused the DNA of Summit with another firm's DNA. But at its core, they're really building firms based on this proactive, super respectful outreach to founders where you're saying, hey, you've done this great thing. You've built a self-financing company in a valuable industry. How can I earn the right to be your partner? And that training really of earning the right to be the partner of choice for a bootstrap founder that's got all the choices in the world, carry on self-financing, probably sell the business, sell to a buyout firm, raise money from all sorts of places. That core training, I think, is at the heart of a lot of the firms that have gone on to be successful. And it's probably in its third or fourth generation now in the US of firms that were built by people that were trained at Summit and then another generation of firms that were built by people that trained at those firms. And it's probably third or fourth generation in the US, but that family tree only really started in the early 2000s in Europe because Summit and TA set up shop in London around that time. And I'm really part of the first generation of indigenous Europeans that were trained by the originals in this particular strategy and are now of a maturity where we can go out and build entrepreneurial businesses that are focused on the particular market that we're playing in. So for us, we're the European branch of a family tree. If you're a bootstrap software company with less than 10 million euros of ARR growing rapidly on a path to leadership in your segment, then we're the European branch of that tree. It's such fascinating history. And I'm reminded of, it seems so often these new areas emerge from some combination of just simple first principles thinking with some pivot. Everybody's doing this one thing. What if we did this slightly different? Because today, now, everything you laid out has become convention. So maybe eventually we'll talk about what's the next shoe to drop and the evolution that you're seeking to inject into the industry. I had seen that one of those entrepreneurs that Jackie had met with back in the day was Bill Gates at Microsoft. So I gather, and I'd love it if anybody who was actually there at the time is willing to be on LinkedIn and give me a first-hand account. But I was just piecing this together and there's various articles out there, but she talks about going out to see Bill Gates. And it was another one of these companies at the time. It was like five to 10 of revenue, remarkably profitable. And they were working on another deal that got hot and they ended up pursuing that deal. And another firm came in and did that first outside capital. I think that other firm is then in the benchmark family tree. If I remember, there's another that did that first outside capital deal at Microsoft that I think was one of the firms that was referenced on the acquired breakdown of benchmark. But yeah, it's just exhilarating to think of that time and the idea that you're out doing what we do today and that these incredible companies are being built. And I think it's an underappreciated thing that the headline inches go to venture. But if you look for the threads, it's incredible how many bootstrap stories lie behind these awesome value creation stories. So with that historical foundation laid, I'd love to hear more just about what you think are the other key points of differentiation. What are the important elements of bootstrapped investing? And feel free to pull from your own career, whether it's things you had learned from the Summit model or HG or other places, but just layer on to that historical narrative, some of the other components to successfully investing this way. The bootstrapped terminology, I think, has different connotations to different people. I think some people would 
hear that term and associate it with somehow businesses that are less ambitious or that are more lifestyle oriented or haven't raised capital because they can't. And that is a really interesting perception to cut through and unpack because there are businesses like that, certainly. There's lots of businesses out there that are self-financing and they have all of those characteristics. The bootstrap software investing we do is really focused on these very ambitious founders who they've chosen not to raise capital and they've been able to build without raising capital. And that sets them apart, in our view, from many of the venture-backed founders who are also incredibly impressive in their own way, but there's something particularly heroic about walking your own path, building a business that has real fundamental value before you choose to raise any capital. There's a certain integrity in that, that I'm not going to go out and sell my dream to other people and see how it goes. I'm going to build something that's fundamentally a valuable business and then choose to come together adult to adult with a partner who really respects what I'm doing and do that on the right terms at the right time. And those founders, they are really disciplined business builders. They're really disciplined allocators of capital in their businesses. You have maybe had in your class Will Thorndike and his book, The Outsiders. There's a lot of coverage in the sort of public investing world of people, the great leaders that think this way and that build their businesses this way. But those same qualities are the qualities that are consistent across these bootstrap founders that we work with. They're just really focused on the things that matter in their business. And that allows them to build these very fundamentally healthy companies that are usually winning despite their balance sheet, not because of it, less capitalized often than a lot of larger incumbents or venture-backed players. And they're able to do that because they've been very customer-centric. They've built really great differentiated products. And they've usually gone after a segment of the market where they can be the best in the market. They can build a right to exist, if you like, by being the leading business in a particular niche. And usually that niche for us is a rapidly growing niche. That's where it gets really exciting because they're able to go and be the leading player in a particular market that at the time where we're investing is becoming more and more valuable. And they're able to not only have this capital efficient bootstrap beginning, but also plot a course to leadership in a really valuable market. This class is brought to you by our friends at Sumus, the revolutionary health benefit solution that gives employees unheard of access to top medical specialists across the full range of medical specialties and employers a proven way to significantly lower their enterprise-level healthcare spend. It's a transformation of access made possible by Sumus's unique marketplace model that in as little as a day connects employees across the country with over 5,100 of the best specialists at the nation's top medical centers through an elegant, simple, medium-agnostic platform and a human relationship-based user experience. The quality of Sumus's solution is unrivaled. They are currently delivering 7 to 10 times higher employee engagement, a 9.4 out of 10 employee satisfaction rate, and all while driving meaningful and measurable healthcare cost savings for the companies they serve. Now, we are delighted Sumus customers, as are many companies in our ecosystem. 
all of which are having amazing results, both in better health outcomes and material cost savings. So if you're looking for a benefit that provides huge value to both your employees and your bottom line, visit sumusglobal.com. That's S-U-M-M-U-S global.com. Stick with Thorndike's Outsiders Framework just for a minute. I find this so interesting. When you think about tech and software, you don't often think about the tools of capital allocation. And yet in this instance, when you're talking about bootstrap founders who are decoupling ambition from immediate scale and all of a sudden with a profitable business in a growing industry, they actually didn't use that toolkit. Now, in Outsiders, almost all of the CEOs bought back shares. When you think about the different tools, you can reinvest into the business, you can pay dividends. There's four or five different tools that Thorndike outlines, but almost nobody essentially takes that outside equity investment in. What is it about these founders that in their minds are willing to sell some of the company? Does that usually go to help grow the company? Is it more secondary shares where they take money off the table? And alongside that, because these are such attractive businesses and there might be a lot of potential suitors out there to do that, how do you differentiate yourself when you go to these bootstrap founders and say, I want to buy part of your company, I'm going to give you equity for that, and you can do with it what you will? The rationale for founders choosing to raise capital are threefold, I would say. One is founder liquidity, shareholder liquidity, aligning risk appetites for ambitious growth. You've bootstrapped a business, you've got increasingly valuable asset. And I think there comes a point where that can be counterproductive to decision-making in the business because you've got all of your wealth in the business and there's something really value creative about, if you like, removing that domestic risk lens, allow you to see clearly through the business's risk lens. And so very often we're providing 5, 10, 20 million euros of founder liquidity to a single founder or to a handful of founders, or sometimes there are some early inactive shareholders, you're providing that liquidity and aligning the cap table for this ambitious period of growth that's ahead. That's one part of it. And sometimes that's all of it. That's the catalyst. And that comes from this idea of these founders really being focused on equity value per share. They own all the shares. And so there's not a sort of venture mindset of just build the biggest equity value, regardless how many shares. They want to be really efficient. And so if the company doesn't need money, they don't want to raise it. And typically, where we're investing as part of what we think is compelling about it is that it's at that moment where founders with that mindset are saying, yeah, I'm very disciplined about dilution, but the return on this capital that I could raise and put on my balance sheet is so significant to the shares that I'm not selling. That's something I want to pursue. And so often there'll be that mix of we're typically investing 10 to 40 million euros per investment, and there'll be a mix. Sometimes it's half, sometimes it's all primary, sometimes it's all secondary, but those are typically the uses. And all of these founders, they've got all the choices in the world. These are really healthy, rapidly growing companies. They're typically on a path to leadership within pretty interesting markets. We need to figure out that these are the companies that we want to invest in. And we're typically paying full and fair valuations to be partnered in those companies. But we also need to earn the right to be chosen as their partner. And 
that is an aspect of this business, which is quite interesting in that typically these businesses themselves are on a path of winning in spite of their brand. They're not the biggest, best known companies. They're not the biggest, most capitalized businesses. And they win with substance. They win with the quality of their product. They win with the quality of the way they operate. And that's how we show up as well. And it's a very similar dynamic where unlike maybe a company that's raising a Series B or any series really of raise to the next raise venture, in that scenario, you really want to look at the signaling value, the brand value of that investor that's coming in. If you're a founder that's thinking this is going to be the first and last capital the company ever raises, because you're going to efficiently build the business from here towards an exit or towards some kind of change of control deal, then it isn't about that. It's about alignment, real alignment and trust that the partner you're working with appreciates what you've built, how you've built it, respects the need to, on the one hand, protect that whilst also bringing whatever capabilities are required to help you take that forward and help you realize its potential. And so where founders choose to work with us, I think it's because of those things, because of that alignment, because we've built our firm to really be aligned with businesses in this size range that are at this stage of the journey, going from 5 to $10 million of ARR towards 50. And then we tend to think that's a pretty good place to start planning an attack on the billion dollar valuation. You can go from there in a really healthy way. Whereas if you bet the farm on a billion dollar valuation when you've got five of ARR, it's probably a different type of investing. And usually these founders, they still own all the shares. So they're often turned off by that billion dollar rhetoric in a way because they own the majority of the company. They want a partner who's aligned to build in a prudent way to an ambitious outcome, but they're not looking to bet the farm on a growth strategy that might blow up the company. So typically that philosophy, yes, pushing for billion dollar outcomes, but getting there with the same mindset that these founders have built their business with, that's an important part of our approach. And I'd say there are great firms that do what we do the way we do it, but they've just grown to a point where they're managing funds that make it difficult to fundamentally be aligned in the same way we are with the types of companies that we're focused on. Yeah, I keep thinking about something you said earlier, which is that these businesses and these founders have a use, but not necessarily a need for capital and how that dynamic almost spurs on the inverse power dynamic that you often see in VC where the founder is beholden to the investor because they have something that they desperately need, which is that next source of capital. It's the humility that is required in our strategy. We're dealing with people who've built businesses and don't need our capital. Then if you think about the attributes of what it takes to be a good investor in this space, it could look quite different. I mean, a couple of things is I'm just taking notes here that feed back into what I know about you and who you are. It seems like you need this combination of raw hustle, both in just the sourcing of these ideas, what it takes to actually get to these people, because a lot of them don't necessarily want to be found, but also in the value add that you need to demonstrate that you can bring to the company because the provider of capital needs to be more than that. There needs to be a vision that yeah. on the margins, you're going to bring tremendous value. You're going to inflect that much more. The company, there's the hustle component, but then there's also just this sort of likability factor, right? 
there's a lot coming out now on the sort of down cycle of venture around the sort of fragmented nature of relationships often between founders and investors there. But you really have to bring that likability kindness factor. You need to be somebody that the founders really wanting to just work with and that they view you as someone who really is a builder helper as opposed to just a provider of equity capital. I think we all have a sense of we love the sport of looking for these exciting companies, markets, these founders that are doing these great things. It's just endlessly energizing for us all on the team. And I think I'm sure it's true for folks across our part of the industry. You're wired a certain way. It's just intellectually endlessly interesting, as well as having this sport-like energy where you're like, okay, there's a company, jump on a plane, go understand it and bring all of your curiosity but also go and build trust and get across the respect you have for what they're doing, work hard to listen to what their challenges are and think about how you can help assemble expertise around them in a way that isn't imposing or getting in their way. It's respectful that these people know how to run their business and that our job is to be an enabler to bring capital, to bring expertise, but also sort of bring it with this real understanding and respect for how hard it is to be doing what they're doing. But I think to do it and love it, you've got to really enjoy it. And I was listening to your last guest talk about going to meet Gorbachev and hoping he was going to get two hours and only getting 10 minutes. And there's an element of that where you got to think, okay, there's this company. It looks so compelling. I got to go get there. I'll take a half hour meeting. And if it turns into two hours, then I'll have done my job, earned my right to be in that conversation. And that'll probably be based on the fact that we've prepared a lot. And it's a surprising conversation from that founder's perspective. He's come into it skeptical and it's been a surprisingly high quality conversation. And we just need to make it our job to always be delivering that. And you can't go too far wrong if there's this very authentic respect for what they're doing. And that goes through the approach you take when you're trying to develop an investment opportunity, but also as a partner to these companies. I think it's, again, we're lucky, compare it to venture on one side, buyout on the other. I think it's a unique strategy and that I think the payoff to trust is really positive. You're dealing with people who fundamentally built valuable companies and they've got all of the vast majority of their life's work, their equity is in this company. They're usually a world expert in what they do. It might be a narrowly defined niche of some kind. They are the expert and they have a track record. Fundamentally, they have a track record of doing remarkable things, building a company. And so it's not the same as a change of control dynamic. You're investing capital as a minority owner and we invest in securities where there's some downside protection and we don't seek control of these businesses. We really try to be a supportive partner. That doesn't mean being a cheerleader. It's not an empty friendship. There's challenge in there as well as a lot of encouragement. But fundamentally, these people that we've got the opportunity to partner with, they are on a mission and we get to be on it with them. And usually, particularly if we've done our job well in thinking about the markets and 
the opportunities that are around these companies, then there's just huge option value. There's so much that can go well in these companies, as well as obviously things that might not go so well, but the mindset of being patient and trusting that these people have led their businesses to this point. And you might have a good quarter or a bad quarter, but you've got the opportunity to be on these journeys with people building valuable companies in valuable markets. I think that's the mindset that we have. I think founders appreciate that supportive, trusting approach. Ollie, let's take a minute to level set on Expedition, your firm that you've created with your team. How big is it? What are you setting out to achieve? What's that brand perception with Bootstrap founders? Just give us some details and who's the investor base and who's that team around you? Expedition founded in 2020. We're now investing our second fund. We just closed at the hard cap, 250 million euro second fund. And the first fund was 175 million euros in size. And all of our capitals being invested in this particular type of software company, bootstrapped European software companies on these ambitious growth journeys with path to leadership in these valuable categories of software. The firm today, it's 18 people. There are eight of us who are investors. We have an operating group, which comprises of some full-time operating professionals who have software operating backgrounds, and they really orchestrate a much larger community of functional specialists that where it's welcomed can help bootstrap founders control their growth effectively by working on the challenges that we find are quite typical across businesses at this point in the journey. And we've been really fortunate. We've raised that capital from a phenomenal group of institutions, endowments, foundations. A majority of our capital now has come from mission-driven organizations. And I think we really appreciate that as a team. I think the founders that we work with also appreciate that. And what we're trying to do is deliver three to five X return profiles in three to five years. That's the target case. And there'll be businesses in our 10 company funds that break out the top of that. And there'll be businesses that aren't able to execute in a way where they deliver those returns. But it's a very different composition to the venture capital portfolio construction, where there's probably a much higher appetite for capital loss, reliance on one or two companies in the fund driving all of the performance, a different profile for us, a more evenly distributed set of outcomes. And we're able to do that because we're investing in these businesses that are fundamentally sound at the time where we invest. They've got hundreds or thousands of customers. They've got really high revenue retention rates, great expansion within their customer bases. We can speak with many customers and get really good primary data points on why these companies are winning. And it's an almost more private equity-like skill set that we're applying in underwriting these businesses and their fundamentals, but we're partnering with them at a time where their founders just see way too much opportunity ahead to consider the change of control buyout type deal. And so we end up crafting these flexible minority recaps and growth deals and putting the fund together with about 10 of those per fund distributed across Europe. We're the team mostly based in London, but we're really agnostic as to where the company is founded. We're really interested in the end software market and then trying to be the best possible partner for these ambitious founders that are building from Europe 
and navigating all the challenges that come with that and the opportunities of building in what is a really valuable European market as well. We've talked a lot about the influence of investing family trees. Curious, what are some of the learnings and characteristics that you've sought to graft into Expedition from your time at both Summit Partners and HG Capital? I mean, two of the most prolific players in this particular niche. What we're doing today really builds on those great training grounds. I think if you look at the Summit toolkit from a deal craft perspective, it's really the core of what we do today, aligning with founders in these minority deal structures, being a very supportive partner to low ego, high competence partner that is there when founders want us to be there, we deliver. And when they want us to get out of the way, we get out of the way. That approach to partnering with founders builds on my summit training and also this appetite for dynamic companies and markets, businesses that are still in a phase of their maturity curve where it's not all perfectly formed yet. And similarly, the market is dynamic and we're aligning ourselves with founders and participating in all the opportunity that's there. And we're embracing the dynamism and the risk in those markets. If you look at HG Capital, I think also best in class at what they do. And it's a different toolkit, I guess. It's value creation in software companies, but probably more focused on the phase of the business where the market is matured, the companies maybe matured and slowed down a little bit. And it's more about operational excellence. And I think that those were very complementary training grounds for me, having been man and boy at Summit, to then go and also see a different group of excellent investors approaching the landscape and a different part of the landscape in a different way. And both of those, I think that the summit training is really at the core of what we've built here, but the opportunity to have that operational mindset and make sure that we can give bootstrap founders the tools they need if they welcome them to drive performance improvement in their companies. That shows up in our business today. If you look at the way we're built and the way we engage with our companies, we are not like buyout investors controlling a company, but we are bringing the resources to help founders control the growth of their companies. And so that might be at a board level, but also importantly at a C minus one level where we have teams of functional experts that can actually roll their sleeves up and help drive the change that founders often want to effect, but are bandwidth constrained and resource constrained to drive that forward. So trying to take the best of those two great schools and apply it to this relatively underserved segment where most of those firms and firms like them have just grown to a point where their core opportunity set is much larger companies. And we think there's a great opportunity to apply that rigor to this segment and to founders who maybe haven't got the same array of choice when it comes to really quality sector specialist, operationally helpful growth partners. Curious what advice you would have for those thinking about building their own investment firm, having just gone through this process the last three years of originating the firm and building out the team. And maybe we can talk about just the talent component to this and how you've sought to create a team to prosecute the opportunity that you want. But as you look back on that journey of actually 
going from working for others who have built these systems and these approaches and philosophies to having to craft all of that again yourself, certainly borrowing from some of their ideas. Just what comes to mind in terms of just some of the key experiences and reflections? I had an authentic interest in the creation story at Summit. When I was there, I loved the work. I loved what we were doing and loved reading the old memos of the deals in the early 80s that were $5 million revenue companies. And yeah, there was a sense of venture around the way that firm was built. There's a great book that one of Patrick's podcast put me onto. I think he was speaking with Toby, the Shopify founder, and recommended a book called Infinite Games, which is a great read. And one of the concepts in there, which is really interesting, is this idea of poesis and poema. Poesis is the creation process, and poema is the creation, the thing that you then look at. And I think when you're looking at the industry, it's very natural to just look at as the firms as they are today and there's a lot of narratives that get built around that and a lot of perceptions around, oh, that's what these firms are. But what's really fascinating is you go back to what was the process of creation? What were actually the steps that got taken to build it? And often the story, it's not neat. It's about perseverance and then eventually connecting with opportunity and a lot of discipline and refinement of what those firms are doing. And that's been my experience. We do get this sort of gratifying sense of compounding that initially it's very much the flywheel turns very slowly step by step. And you do start to get a sense that investors investing in operating talent and, and importantly, prospective portfolio companies start to regard you as a leader in your segment. And this huge opportunity that comes with that, but I don't think you can jump to that I think it requires a lot of patience and almost the more patient you are in getting there, maybe the more durable it will be when you get there. Because I think you do hear about situations where businesses get created at great scale overnight, but I tend to think that the hard patient road, and it's not to say it's not a very enjoyable road, a road of daily application and trying to recenter yourself and make sure each week is generative, not depletive. And I think if you can find that cadence where you're accustomed to a lot of hard work and you've got the outlets where you can have your life in balance as well, then that's a pretty powerful combination over time. You sort of add time to that and it's possible to actualize a lot of things. But maybe the most satisfying aspect of building a company is that it requires everyone to, to operate beyond the edge of their individual capabilities. You quickly run into the need to have the best possible team operating within the best possible culture and getting that right becomes more important and more demanding than any single investment that we might be working on. And I'm just super grateful for you know, the collective effort that goes into to making us a, a better firm each week. It's also been crucial to have an amazing partner outside the business. You know Nula Rick, and she has just been a continual source of support and really wise counsel at various points along the way, whilst also pouring herself into our wonderful family. David Senra always talks on founders about the recurring importance of having a great life partner and 
yeah, that that just rings very true for me. Ali, I imagine this process you've gone through the last three or four years, not only, like you said, has it been full of joy and challenges alike, but I know for Rick and me too, starting Seder Grove around the same time, I think it's given us a lot of empathy for founders. And there are new ways that we're finding with our story that we can connect with their story. So I'd love to flip this conversation to those founders. Let's unpack it just a few examples. You founded Expedition. Your main mission is to go find these bootstrap founders and partner with them. Yeah. Give us a few of your favorite examples and some specifics around size of company, what they're going after, and how you won the deal. So there's one, we just funded it today, actually. That's top of mind. Awesome company in Sweden, in Stockholm, called Zensam. And they are the leading cloud platform in the world for software asset management. So companies all over the world have got sprawling estates of software and this platform gives you visibility into understanding and controlling that state of software. And it's a business that is totally bootstrapped, profitable company growing 100% on its way to $10 million of ARR. And you speak to enterprise customers around the world and just resoundingly tell you this is hands down the best product in the market. There are a couple of other players in their market category, and both of them from an innovation standpoint are fading stars. I guess they're more mature companies buy our own businesses. And in fact, one of them just acquired the other. That creates a very interesting competitive dynamic for the modern innovative player and just creates a huge amount of opportunity for that business with customers and partners looking for the best of breed modern solution in a category like that. And for us, that's really attractive. There are categories of software where there are really promising bootstrap companies, but the competitive landscape is also full of other well-capitalized, modern, comparable solutions. And what's great about this category is that's just not the case. It's really the world's leading capability in an area that's becoming more and more important to companies of all sizes. That's an investment we just funded today. It's a minority investment. We've provided one of our typical structure, mix of founder liquidity and growth capital. That was a business that received interest from a wide variety of growth firms, European firms, US firms. And because of the particularly attractive characteristics of the business and its positioning, there are a number of larger firms that were reaching down to try and become the first outside shareholder there. And our ability to win there was a function of our alignment with their objectives and the fact that we are in business to serve companies like that. And the fact that we were able to, yes, be an entrepreneurial dynamic firm that is positioned in our industry in a similar way that they are in theirs. But importantly, we're also not asking them to compromise when it comes to portfolio support and operational capabilities. These kind of companies, they deserve to have a first-class proposition across the board. It's a company that's got a really valuable future, and it's right that they be pretty discerning about that. We're very glad they've chosen us. Congrats on that. There's one that you've had in the portfolio for quite a while. We've spoken about in the past, Amelia. And I know that's one where you personally are on the board, help shepherd the growth. Talk about that example. This is a great bootstrap story, a great David versus Goliath story where Demetrius, the founder, has been able to build the business actually out of Athens in Greece. 
that is really just a world leader in his field. So there's a segment of the conversational AI market that is particularly interesting in call centers. So call centers have been a massive area of cost, a really slow area to move to the cloud because it's a sort of frontline customer channel and also a cause of a lot of low customer satisfaction for large enterprises all around the world. And it's a very hard problem to solve. And Amelia has been in that field solving the challenges of these call center operations professionals for many years, really at the forefront of AI, but AI, an applied enterprise context. And so they continue with ever higher standards to deliver superior performance to human interactions, but to do it in a way that allows enterprise customers to manage all of the workflow requirements that they have in that business setting. We've spoken to some of the largest customers that they have, and they are really the trusted platform for designing, testing, deploying, managing virtual agents in a large customer call center environment. It's just been fantastic seeing how that business has developed in recent years. And Demetrius, he's got a model of a sailboat in his office and it says something on it to the effect of you won't conquer the oceans if you stay within sight of shore. He's a guy who has just been pursuing his vision with incredible focus and bold, powerful moves in his industry. And it's really bearing fruit now and more and more the largest contact centers in Europe and the US deciding to deploy this platform at the core of their call center operations. What's important to understand about the European context within this space? We're touching on some of these with these examples, but maybe just say a little bit more about the prosecution of this strategy specifically in Europe versus say globally. What's important to understand? The European landscape is full of fantastic entrepreneurs building really strong companies, really innovative companies, products that are world-class. I think the ecosystem for software companies has come so far since I started at Summit in 2005. The ecosystem has just transformed and the amount of company creation, the amount of capital, the number of exits, the amount of talent that has come up through the ecosystem, that flywheel is turning and creates just an increasingly opportunity-rich environment for company building and investing. What we tend to find is that the founders we partner with appreciate that we've got a global outlook. We think about software in a global context, but we are built in Europe for European companies that are building from a European base and considering the US as part of their opportunity set, but also building valuable businesses in their home markets and often in some cases bootstrapping within home markets, in other cases building from day one to be US-centric businesses. And what we often get asked the question, do you have people that speak every language? And we don't. We have a diverse team and a bunch of languages on the team. But I think the language that most of the founders we work with really want us to speak is the language of bootstrapping. They are outsiders. They've often never met somebody who's bootstrapped a company. They're the only people they know who've 
chosen this road and we've got 15 of them in our portfolio and they all follow that pattern. And so that's a pretty key level on which we connect with people wherever they're from, whether it's the Czech Republic or Sweden or France or wherever it might be. And then the other one is the language of market leadership and the strategy how do you build from being a 5 to 10 million euro ARR company? How do you build ambitiously from there and strategically? And how do you realize the potential of these companies in a really professional, considered way? And that tends to be the most important factor. I think there are other strategies that are more local in nature, but most of our companies, they're internationally or globally ambitious. They want a globally oriented partner. They appreciate that we're in the same time zone and we spend all our time working with European founders who are going after the same price. When you think about some of the big trends today, let's talk about AI. I know Amelia uses AI in their product yeah. as an example, but when you think about bootstrap profitable companies, you don't often think about AI. You don't think about profits, let alone in some cases, even revenue. How do you think about that theme in terms of your hunting ground now, whether it's a tool that your companies use or that there actually could be small, fast-growing, profitable AI-based companies that might be in that universe you can look at? A couple of elements to that. I think one is the companies we're investing in now. I think we see the importance of really proprietary data and often that comes from being embedded in really mission-critical workflows. So that combination of businesses that are positioned such that they get access to unique domain-specific data that will allow them to deepen the value that they're delivering to their customers through AI in a way that's defensible. Those are the dynamics that we look for and that we see in companies like Omelia that benefits from billions of minutes of regulated call data and just continually growing data asset there and is able to harness all the latest technologies to deliver massive ROI to its customers, but do it in a way that is integrated with all of the complex workflows that those customers care about. It's not AI in the lab. It's really enterprise-ready AI for complex regulated use cases. And so we see that across the things we're invested in, and that we're investing in at the moment. Zensam would be another example where it's got this incredible, unique positioning for data, rich, valuable data capture across the enterprise. But if I then look at what it does to the bootstrapped opportunity, I believe there's an era coming of huge bootstrapped company creation. And clearly, a lot of the focus right now is on these fundamental technologies that can be very capital intensive. But I think if you look at the graduating classes of smart people and what their incentives have been for the last decades, you can go and take your capabilities and it's pretty rational to join a bank, join a consulting firm, join a venture capital firm and take on this training and the entry level roles there. I think we're going into an environment where more and more of those roles are going to be addressed by some combination of people and technology. And there's going to be a much stronger incentive for people to go and do genuinely innovative things. Maybe it's going to be harder to get paid a high wage to do things that aren't really innovative or don't require some risk. And I think that's probably going to lead to 
a huge amount of human capital, the most exciting human capital in the economy, deviating its attention to being innovative and mastering these tools, mastering these technologies, and probably being able to build really exciting companies without raising venture capital, because you can master those tools and do the work of 20 developers and have somebody do the work of 10 SDRs. It's very waves of companies coming that look like that. And I expect that a lot of them won't need venture capital to get to pretty interesting scale. And we want to be ready for them at the point where they choose to raise because there's a catalyst and they want to de-risk a little bit and bring in a partner that can be supportive on the journey. So I'm pretty optimistic about the opportunity set. I think it's one that will be quite attractive for our strategy. It's not at this moment right now, but that's okay. I think we sort of just be ready when those folks are growing rapidly through five to 10 of ARR and thinking about doing something. Ali, this has been just a really fascinating conversation on a space of investing that probably hasn't had appropriate level of light shined on it. Thank you for your illumination. For those in the class or the broader audience that this conversation's resonated with, just curious if there's any particular resources or books that have inspired you either as an investor or more broadly that you would want to recommend? I think there's a couple of classics. One of them, I'm sure lots of your guests have sure I've heard them referencing it, but Jim Collins is good to great is just, I continue to think it's just got so many great principles in it that I found useful in building my own business and are applicable to simple principles for a lot of companies. And then more specifically, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm, I think is a really fascinating read when you think about this segment that we're in. There's actually a sort of interesting note at the back of that book that comments on, okay, what's the strongest place from which to deploy these strategies? And he references effectively that it's from a place of bootstrap growth. That's the foundation from which you really want to pursue this discipline playbook for getting from visionary early adoption through to mainstream adoption as the reference leader in your category. And we talk about that with our companies and it's a very readable page turner that is actually pretty stimulating read if you're interested in the challenges of these companies. Listen, this has been such a pleasure to spend this kind of time with you. Obviously, we're connected at the hip in many respects, both in friendship and in partnership. So we are rooting for you and we're grateful for you. But more than anything, we just appreciate the insights and appreciate you sharing what you've learned along your own journey with us and whoever else is crazy enough to be listening to this. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your partnership and appreciate you having me on the show. All right. Stay grovely out there. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks so much for showing up to class today. For more Art of Investing episodes and to explore all of the resources we mentioned today and more, check out staygrovey.com. That's stay, G-R-O-V-E-Y.com. That's it for now, and we'll see you next time.